And we're going to read in chapter 2. Find it on page 1226 of the Pew Bible. We're going to look at verses 28 through into chapter 3, verse 3, the verses we've been singing. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Lord, this is your word. We worship you for it, and we ask that you would help us so that as you speak to us through it, we would have receptive hearts. Take away the things that would hinder us receiving, the deadness of our minds, the coldness of our hearts, the sinfulness of our emotions, the weariness of our bodies. Lord, grant that we would be revitalized and changed through your word in your name. Amen. I was talking with John Cooper about his work with children in Dundee. Um, the children last night, those children that you saw singing there, every single one of them is uh, either a, an orphan, uh, usually an orphan because of AIDS, or someone who has been traumatized through war. And when I was talking with John, we were talking about children in Dundee and the surrounding area who actually, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way, have similar stories. And some of you know that John works with children, and the one thing he said was, he just said, he said, it's almost impossible because they've got no hope. Now, I did an interview with uh, Ivan and Olive, the leaders of the Watoto group here, just before we started the service, and I said to them, why do you keep bringing Christianity? You know, because lots of people, people there last night who would say, isn't it lovely, you know, you have... These kids come and they sing really, really well in the colorful uniforms and we like Africa and um, it's a great work that they're doing. But why do you just have to keep bringing Jesus into it? Why do you? And I asked them, I said, why bring Christianity into it? And Ivan looked at me as though I was completely mad, as though the question was totally incomprehensible. And said, we have to give the children hope and if they don't have any hope, what have they got? And he said, if they're on drugs and they don't have any hope, you take them off drugs, they'll go back to drugs. You have to give them hope. And the one thing that came across last night for me was just, and it's not just the fact you could say, oh, well, it was kind of staged. It was very moving, very emotional. But I think the thing that came across more than anything is when you talk to the kids uh, and talk to the leaders as well, they've absolutely got hope. Now, you wouldn't actually, we probably wouldn't want to hear their whole story. And I thought it was very impressive that we didn't get told that, what their stories were. They don't talk about their stories. They, they talked about their hope. And that fits in very, very well with what we have here. We as Christians have a great hope, and we're, we're looking at that in uh, this passage. So first of all, our hope is simply this. Jesus is coming back. That's what he says. When he appears, 
we should be confident and unashamed. He's talking about Jesus returning. Now, he uses, he, he does a play on two words, John. The first word is the word parousia, which means confidence. And the second word in Greek is the word parousia, which means appearing. And he's, he's talking about how when Jesus returns, we as Christians will be confident and unashamed and delighted to see him coming back. We don't get a lot of teaching on the second coming, though it is in every single book of the New Testament and some in the Old as well. Titus 2, it's up there. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. It is the confident hope that we have that Christ will return. Now, it's a question that you and I have to ask ourselves about what actually is our hope. What are we hoping for? Believers live in the light of Christ's second coming. It's a bit like the parousia, the return of Jesus, the appearing of Jesus, being the ultimate royal visit. I remember when the Queen came, I was brought up in Easter Ross in a place called Nig, and the Queen came to visit the oil yard there, and it was so funny because they painted, you can tell the route she was going on, because when they had a building, they painted the wall that she would see, but not the other three walls. So the Queen always went, and they planted flowers, in the, so you knew the route, if you were a terrorist, you could work it out quite easily where the Queen was going, because that's, that's how they did it, it was all spruced up. John is suggesting to us that we have to be ready, that people there were being ready for the visit of the queen. He's suggesting to us we have to be ready for the visit of Jesus and not with an artificial coat of paint on the thing that he's going to see. He sees the law, obviously. And he's saying when Jesus returns, will we meet him with shame, with fear, with regret, or with anticipation and joy? And there is a real confidence here, not the confidence of the arrogant, but the confidence which gives freedom of speech and joyful access. And it's not just when he returns, but it's the attitude we have now because we have to live as though Jesus could return today. And if Christ were to return right now, would we be ashamed, would we be fearful, or would we be joyful and uh, expectant? Why would we look forward to this? How can we have this kind of confidence? How do we have, how, how is this really a hope rather than a dread? Oh, I hope Jesus doesn't come soon. Let's look at that. Two reasons, first of all, because we are in Christ. Continue in him, he says in verse 28. We are born of him. You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. We look forward to the return of Jesus because being a Christian is not about living a little better. It's not about putting a little bit more money in the plate when we were collecting for Watoto last night or whatever. It's not about deciding I'm going to come to church a wee bit more. Being a Christian is about being radically renewed. Our lives are rooted in Christ. That's where our security is. That's where our hope is. And because of that, we do what is right. We 
Because we've been radically renewed, there's within us that habitual practice of goodness. So Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The Bible doesn't say to you, be loving, be joyful, be patient. Be, those, they come in in different ways. But it's saying, really, the real fruit are these things because of who you are and what you have in terms of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is righteous, I am righteous. Because I am in him, I am righteous. I do right by remaining in him. That's why John is writing here. He's not saying if you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. He's not saying if you do good things, then you'll be accepted by God. He's saying because you've been born of God, you will do good things. You will have the fruit of the Spirit. And if you don't, then you've got a question. You've got to say, well, have I really been born of God? He's not teaching perfectionism. We know that from the parts we've already looked at in this letter. But he is teaching that being a Christian just changes absolutely everything. Our life is one continual life of continual renewal of our relationship in Christ. I think when we meet in worship this morning, it's a good way for us to think of what we're doing, that it's a kind of covenant renewal. It's a kind of where we as God's people, holy and dearly loved, just come to Jesus again and say, yes, Lord. If we had an altar call in this church, then basically you should all come forward because we should always be returning to Christ because we wander away from him very easily. We drift. We, we, we struggle in so many ways. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what Jesus is saying to you is that it is the most, the greatest need you have, the most essential thing you have is that you are rooted in Christ. The rest follows from that. Right now, you might be thinking of 101 different things that are bothering you, 101 different sins that are disturbing you. But the one thing necessary, the most needful thing, is that you are rooted in Christ and that you grow in Christ. And I kind of said this last night, and I would have said it again, but it does sound a bit patronizing, but I really do mean this. When I was looking at these kids last night, I was thinking, man, you come from such poverty and distress, and yet you're so wealthy. You know, we have this kind of, Hugh's smiling at me and laughing at me because he has this experience all the time, but we have this kind of notion, we go as missionaries to Africa. And it's a sort of kind of arrogant, paternalistic, sometimes imperialistic thing. I, I think that what this country needs is missionaries from Africa. We, we need people to, to show us that our, our hope is in Christ. I think it's incredible that... Um, I was at a conference, the World Reformed Fellowship, and I think the person who spoke most strongly and most confidently about Christ was uh, the Anglican Archbishop from Uganda, who was absolutely tremendous. And you just think, if only our Anglican Archbishops here would, you know, just be as straight down the line in terms of following Christ. Now, we, we're in him, we're confident because we're in him, we're, we, we do what's right because we're in Christ, but also this, this is where you get into chapter three, that... John, and it's a connected thing. This is not a disc. You don't begin chapter three, if you like, with verse one. 
Uh, you have to go back to these first bits because it's saying about when Christ comes, why will we be confident? We'll be confident because we're in him. We'll be confident because he's righteous and therefore we are righteous. But we're confident because of this great love that the Father has for us. And what he does is, the old authorized version has behold. And I think that the NIV just misses a little bit because he, he's saying, he is saying, look. He's saying, grasp it. There's an astonishment. There's an admiration. We need to take time to contemplate the love of Christ and to allow its reality to sink down into the very depths of our being. There are a lot of things that are in the very depths of our being that mean we don't want to go there. But we have to let the love of Christ go there. And that's why we need to contemplate the love of Christ. The knowledge of the love of Christ going real deep into our hearts and minds. An astonishing love. It's, um, if, you, if, if you don't even get the basic fact that the love of Christ is something that's really, really astonishing, you're, you're not going to grow as a Christian. He says, literally, he says, of what country is this? The love that the Father, and he's saying, where does this come from? How, how do we have this? Why such love for me? Why such love for us? He's saying it's indescribable. He's saying it's astonishing. He's saying it's amazing grace. He's saying it's overwhelming. And he expands on it in this way. First of all, he says we are called by his name. How great is the love? Where, where does this come from? This fantastic love. Look at this love that the Father has lavished on us, poured out upon us, that we should be given the name of God. It's the biblical doctrine of adoption, taking a child into the family who has no family. Again, um, just going back to those kids, it was just lovely hearing them talking about their mums and their dads, that they were taken to a toto, they were given a mum and a dad. And you can see what that meant to them. As a child being teased in school once about being adopted, oh, you're just adopted. And he responded, and the response was spot on. Well, at least my parents chose me. Yours just got you. you know, and I think that there is, uh, there's a great deal of truth in that. Why would you adopt? What would motivate you to adopt? Compassion? The cuteness of the child? The, the, the need that is there? Why does God adopt? Absolutely compassion. But it's not because of our cuteness. He just takes us. And he adopts us into his family. He gives us his name and he gives us his status. And then John goes on to exclaim, that is what we are. It is incredible love that God adopts us. And it is an incredible fact that not just that we are called the children of God, but that is actually what we are. God's calling is an effectual calling. God speaks, let there be light and there is light. God says, let them be my child and we are. So God says to you, my child, and you are his child. God breathes his spirit, and you are reborn. And John is saying we reflect that. We, we, as we are Christians who believe and trust in Christ, we belong to our heavenly father, we are his children, we reflect that. Why did God do this? Not because we were attractive, 
Not like God coming to an orphanage and saying, oh, I like that one, that one's cute, but that one's a bit ugly, I forget about that one. It's God does it, Deuteronomy, for example, 7, 7 to 8, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. You know how a child will, will ask a question, why? Why do we have to have lunch? Because you need food. Why do we need food? Because you'll die without it. Why will we die? Because, you're, you know, and the child goes on and on and on. And at some point you stop. We might want to be saying, God, why, why do you want me to be a Christian? Or why do you want me to follow you? Or why am I a Christian? Why am I your child? And we can go through a whole range of different reasons because I was at this meeting, because I heard your word, because uh, this person was an influence on me, because I made this decision, because something happened a long time ago, because, because, because. But the bottom line, it stops. And you can't go any deeper or any further than this. Why are you a child of God? Because God loves you. That's it. Why did he choose you? Because he loves you. The bottom line is the love of God. That's why all the, the kind of great songwriters grasp that. Um, there's two I wanted to put up. Two just fantastic hymns. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake... My Lord should take frail flesh and die. Think about that song. Because if, again, you, you need to grasp this. You need to feel this. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown. Do you really believe that you're loveless? Do you really believe? Can you say, who am I? Who am I? Why, why do I deserve this? The answer is you don't. It's love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Or Horatius Boner wrote these words, O love of God, how strong and true, eternal and yet ever new, uncomprehended and unbought, beyond all knowledge and all thought. You, you will try for all eternity to grasp. There are lots of questions that we have, by the way. Questions like, why suffering? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? The hardest question to answer, and you'll take all eternity to answer it, is why love? Why me? This love that is uncomprehended and unbought beyond all knowledge and all thought. Such love is really, really hard for us to accept. Unconditional, limitless love. You know, perhaps you had the kind of upbringing where your parents' approval had to be earned. And that's kind of set the pattern for the whole of your life. A lot of us are like that. We're always trying to be good enough to persuade God to love us rather than accept the fact that he already does love us. The trouble is, if you try to be good enough to persuade God to love you, then everything that you do, instead of being a delight in serving God, becomes a duty and a drudgery. You say, okay, that's not me. No, 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 I delight in God. All right, let me reverse the question. Let me say, do you find serving God a duty and a drudgery? Do you get frustrated and angry and, and annoyed and just, oh, here we go again. I'm so weary. 
Weary in well-doing, weary in serving God. You know, it's not wrong to be weary. It's not wrong to be tired. But if you're finding everything a duty and a drudge, let me say this to you. I suspect you haven't grasped or seen or you've lost this sense of the love of God in Christ. David Jackman says this, we need to stop our busy Christian lives from time to time to assess honestly how much of our activity is an expression of love for the Lord who loves us and how much comes from being driven along by our desire to impress, which reveals a fundamental insecurity, or by group pressures, which dictate whether or not we belong. Now, now stop and think about that just for a moment. Why are we doing things? Well, I'm working really hard to prepare a sermon so I can impress some people so that people won't be upset. Or I'm working really hard in the church so that people won't think I'm a failure. I fall into that trap all the time. But, but it, God is just not impressed. God is not impressed. That's not what God is looking for. Or it may be group pressures where we're concerned about what other people think, about what other people feel. I think there are two dangers in saying what's just been said. The first is this. There are some of you who listen to this and you go, I totally agree, absolutely. Working too hard. And you're bone lazy. You're not working at all. But you're just saying, I'm chilled out, relaxing in God and all the rest of it. It's not that your life, you have two busy Christian lives. You often find people saying, oh, yeah, 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 I I, I think it's, you know, Christian life shouldn't be too busy. Um, It's just you, you hardly have a Christian life at all. And what I mean by that is that you have busy other lives. You're very chilled about your Christianity. Oh, you're not bothered. But you're very stressed and worked up about everything else. Stressed about work, stressed about home, stressed about finance. And I think that if we are like that, we, we haven't got it either. Our motivation, we, we serve because of what Christ has done for us. We don't look at what Christ has done for us and go, hey, Lord, yeah, that's really good. Thanks. Now let me get on with the rest of my life. That's not what we do. The second danger is that some of us too easily project onto God our experience of our natural fathers and we end up with insecurity. And what I mean by that is that for whatever reason, we've grown up in an environment where we feel insecure, we feel that we haven't earned the approval of our fathers or our mothers. And we, we project that onto God. We're trying to do exactly the same thing. Okay? Where is our security? Is it in what we are or what we can do in order to learn the love of God? Or is it in the simple, astonishing effect that God loves us? Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. We saw this last week. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. Now, I think if we have confidence in God, then it has practical outcomes for us. And we'll just turn to those briefly just now. Our security then has to be in the love of God. Our security is not in what we can do for God. The fact that we're so loved by the God who loves us. Sorry, that previous verse was from Peter about the great hope that we have in terms of Christ turning. 
explains certain things. It explains why the world does not know us. The world doesn't know you. It did not know him. It has no idea of the love relationship that exists between God and his people. I have never yet met a non-Christian who grasps that Christianity is about the love of God for his people and the love of a Christian for God. That's not what people see. They always see Christianity as being somehow either a kind of religion or a way of earning your steps into heaven or some test of morality, whatever. They never see it in terms of that kind of relationship. The world doesn't know us. Don't expect the world to look at us. Don't expect the world to look at us and to say, well, isn't that wonderful, these Christians? It explains why we do not know. He says we do not know what we will yet be. But we trust him. That's what he's saying. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We are his children. We are Christ's brother. We don't have it all sussed. We don't have it all worked out. I was speaking to Alastair I yesterday, and we were talking about this thing in terms of, I was actually talking about this passage, talking about how we use our time, talking about how stressed we are. And he said this. Now, I'll throw this out as a, a thought for you, okay? He said, middle-class Christians are very, very protective of their time when it comes to the church. They need time for leisure, time for family, time for whatever. And it's, they're very, and he said, what I, and he finds that when he ministers in a working class area, people are much more freer in terms of giving time. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but he, it was an interesting observation to me. And we were talking about it and he said, the reason is because we like to be in control. We like to have as far as possible we like to be in control, and we've been brought up to be in control. And the bottom line is that we are not. And one of the hardest things that you are ever going to do is to accept that you're not in control and to accept that sometimes things happen that you have no control over, and it doesn't fit in with your plan, and it doesn't fit in with your schedule. And you just have to get on with it. It is very inconvenient when you get sick and you can't do what you planned. It is very inconvenient when things don't work out in the church just precisely the way that you would want. It is really annoying when you have a prayer meeting and someone tries to break into you and sets the alarm off and so on, all that kind of stuff. Right? It's just, it's, it's inconvenient. It's just, and we just don't like inconvenience. And we don't like mess. The fact is that the reality of life is that it's messy and it will continue to be messy and you can surround it with all the control features that you want but it will still be messy. And our ultimate and absolute hope is this. It's not saying that we shouldn't organize ourselves. Of course we should. But our hope is not in our organization. Our hope is not even in our self-control. Our hope has to be absolutely that we belong to Christ. That's the great hope. Christ is going to come. He's going to appear. He's going to take us home. Hope springs eternal in the human heart. I think we are all motivated by our hopes and fears. Um, I actually like MasterChef, and one day I would like to appear on MasterChef, but there's no, <laughs> there is absolutely no chance whatsoever. Um, but that I've, this is the kind of sad life I have. I imagined what it would be like if I was on MasterChef, and they said to me, what would it mean to you if you were to win this? And the correct answer is, oh, it would mean everything. 
it's my whole life and all that kind of stuff. Um, Britain's Got Talent, which in a perverse way I like, but which I never ever want to be on, is it, it's the same kind of thing. You stand up on the platform and Simon Cowell and Amanda and Piers, they say, well, what would it mean if you, would, if, if you were to win Britain or appear before the Queen? Oh, it would mean the world to me. I think the correct Christian answer to both of those would be MasterChef. What would it mean if you were to win MasterChef? Actually, not a great deal, because I've got a far better hope in Jesus Christ. And I don't really care whether I win or not. I just enjoy doing this. You're probably not going to advance too far in that program. Britain's got talent. What would it mean to appear before the Queen? Well, I think it'd be quite nice, but she's just an ordinary human being like the rest of us, and, and uh, she's going to die the same, and Jesus is coming back, and we all have to be ready. So, no, not, nothing really doesn't really bother me too much. One day I'm going to meet the King of Kings, and that really is what affects me. We shall be like him. In preparing us for Jesus returning, he makes us more like Jesus, so we stop taking matters into our own hands. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, being transformed into his likeness. Philippians 3.21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Michael Eaton says, we shall have a body that radiates with the brightness of holiness that is imperishable, unable to deteriorate and honorable, a body of dignity and excellence conformed to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sight of Jesus will transform us. You're suffering from illness. You're suffering from disability. You're suffering from emotional disability and psychological and all the rest of it. When Christ appears, everything is transformed. All that pain, everything is gone. We shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. In heaven, there will be a new way of seeing Jesus. And to be honest, I can't wait. I, my vision of Jesus is so weak and so obscured. And that means, he says, that we purify ourselves. We are not spiritually complacent. We are not passively waiting for the return. We know we are sinners, but we long for sinlessness and we seek after purity of life. We want purity from moral stain. We have purity of life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How do we purify ourselves? We look at Jesus. He, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. A daily, disciplined obedience to God. In the midst of the battle, in the midst of the torment, in the midst of the struggle, is what we need. Now, I think that those verses and that confidence that we have, as I said, it's not the confidence of the arrogant and the boastful and the self-righteous, but the confidence of the loved child, the freedom of speech, freedom to be able to pray to God, freedom to tell others, joyful access, worship. We do need to take time to look. And in a sense, that's what we've done. But we've only begun to scratch the surface. And I want to use one word to sum this up, overwhelming. I know that this is true for some of you. And for me, I've never known this to be so true as in the past few weeks. You just have this feeling of being overwhelmed. The pressures and the stresses and the strains upon your life. You sit down, if you get a chance to sit down, and you just think, I can't cope with this anymore. I just can't do this. 
There's just, there's just so much. And it just gets piled on wave after wave after wave. John Calvin says, the more necessary it is that all our thoughts should be withdrawn from the present view of things, lest the miseries by which we are on every side surrounded and almost overwhelmed should shake our faith in that felicity which as yet lies hid. What he's just saying in that is very simple. He's saying if you focus only on what you're experiencing just now, the pressures, the illnesses, the sinfulness, the struggles, the letdowns, everything, if you focus on that, if your emotional life is drawn up with that, if your mind is drawn up with that, you will sink beneath the waves, you will drown. You actually have to look beyond that. You have to look to the hope that you have in Christ. So as wave after wave after wave hits you, your feet are on the rock and you are looking to glory and the devil can, can pour the whole lot but if you contemplate the love of Christ, it changes everything. Because there's two kinds of being overwhelmed. That verse I put up there from Ephesians, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. If you are filled to the measure of the fullness of God, there is no room for despair. There are two kinds of being overwhelmed. There's this overwhelming of your circumstances, this overwhelming of your heart, there's this overwhelming of your body physically. There's this just, as I say, these waves that pour in upon you that you, your mind can't take anymore and you crack. You just, you can't, you can't carry on. But there's another kind of overwhelming and it's as wave after wave of the love of Jesus Christ washes you, soothes you, cleanses you, amazes you, purifies you, stuns you, renews and energizes you. The love of Christ dwelling in us richly. See, you can have a kid whose mother has died of AIDS, who's been left orphaned, who's been recruited aged 10 years old into an army and been told that unless you kill people, you will be killed, and is rescued from that, goes to something like Watoto, hears about Jesus, believes in Jesus, and so on. They don't need to go over and over and over again in their minds what has happened in their life. They need that to be replaced by something that is a whole lot better. And if that's true for them, it's true for me and it's true for you. All that stuff from your childhood, all that stuff from your past, all that stuff from yesterday, all that angst, all that fear from today, Sure, try and deal with it. But the, the, the greatest thing is actually to be overwhelmed by the love of Jesus Christ. And that's the thing that astonishes me and amazes me. When we were here last night, I was sitting upstairs with um, 
Sheena, you know, we just, we're just saying, we did not, we didn't expect this. We didn't expect this in this sense because it was so overwhelming. But for me, the overwhelming thing was not the tragedy of the, the, the kids' stories, but the triumph of the gospel in their lives. And I have no idea how a single non-Christian last night could walk out of that place and go, yeah, just, that's just religion for you. Yeah, that's just religion for you. Rescues people from the very pit and brings them into a level of joy and, and happiness that you just go, wow, wish I had that. And that's what we need. That's what we want. And I can't give it to you. No one can give it to you until you see the beauty and the glory and the love of Jesus. So whatever your circumstances, wherever you're at, let's just ask for that.